Good morning. And as we begin this section and this portion of our worship service, uh, let's start with a prayer. Guide us, O God, by your word and spirit, that in your light we may see light, in your truth find freedom, and in your will discover your peace. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11, to chapter 6, verse 12. You can find that in the Pew Bible in front of you on page 943. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11, through 6, verse 12. And again, it's on page 943. And when you have found it, please rise for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you, again, the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and a faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we do if God, if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. This is the word of the Lord. It is good to see you all, worship with you, some new faces and some old faces that I haven't seen in a while, and praise the Lord for keeping you up until this point. Uh, we have been going through, if you don't know, we have been going through the book of Hebrews. And in the book of Hebrews, it's really interesting because it would, uh, the author of Hebrews would talk about Jesus Christ, how amazing he is, and then talk about a warning. So once you know the truth, there is a lie that needs to be exposed. And once you know a deeper truth, there's another lie that needs to be exposed. And one, thing, one way we could look at it is there is an issuance of teaching and then there is an issuance of warning. This is actually the third warning in this book. So it's the third issuance of warning. And I have three points for us this morning. And that is infants, apostates, and imitators. Infants, apostates, and imitators. So let's start with infants from chapter 5, verse 11 to 14. In verse 11, it says, About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. And what does this mean? What is he talking about? He's talking about just the verse before, about Melchizedek. It says in the verse before, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. What does that even mean? And so before the author starts to explain, this is going to be something very glorious. It's going to be deep. It's going to be profound. It's going to bring you to a new understanding of the gospel. It's going to bring riches into your life. Before he even starts that, he says about this, we have much to say. There's so much to say, but it's going to be hard to explain because you are dull of hearing. 
What does that mean? And this is from the Greek word nothros. Nothros is actually used only twice in the New Testament. It's here in verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 11, and also at the end of chapter 6, verse 12. So the two times nothros is used in the New Testament is in this section. That's why I believe this section belongs together. It's unfortunate there's a chapter break, but verses uh, 11 from chapter 5 to verse 12 from chapter 6 is one section. It's meant to be taken together, and it's sandwiched. It's the, the two buns that are holding these things together is the word nothros, sluggish, slow to learn. Is there any other instance that we can see nothros being used in history so we really understand what does it mean by nothros, dull or sluggish? What does that mean? And we see that in the Septuagint. Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible. And so in the Septuagint, it's there in Proverbs chapter 22, verse 29. It's a very famous proverb that you might know if you grew up in the church. And it says, do you see a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. It's one of my favorite proverbs. Do you see a man skillful in his work? He will, not stand before, uh, he will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. Uh, in the Septuagint, you could translate it this way. A man with vision and skilled in his work should serve before kings and should not serve nothros. And it's translated in English as slothful men, lazy people, sluggish people, people dull of hearing. So you could get, kind of get this context. I want to explain these amazing things about the doctrine of Christ, about the gospel. Let's go deep. Let's go broad. Let's start to learn and receive the riches God has promised us. And yet, it's going to be very difficult because we have become sluggish we have become dull in our hearing so that's how he starts this and it's a very very apt warning that he's giving the listeners or the readers of this letter to the hebrews in verse 12 to 13 it says this for though by this time you ought to be teachers you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of god you need milk not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. Now there is a teaching mechanism that's used here. It's very familiar if you went through 1 Corinthians with me. It's called sarcasm. So there's sarcasm here from verses 12 to 13. You need milk, not solid food. You're a baby. Wah, wah, here's a bottle. That's the kind of picture that you see. And you might think, well, that's, that's pretty mean. What does that even, well, why, why is he using this mechanism? And one of the things that you get to see as you continue to mature and as you continue to raise people, you might, there's a lot of, like uh, the elder prayed today, there's a lot of babies going up, uh, growing up, being born, things like that. When you employ mechanisms of teaching, especially with those that you love and those that you've been entrusted with, the care that you've been entrusted with, you will employ everything that you can, every teaching mechanism you can. And if you look at social media, they always promote just one kind. You know, don't be mean, be nice, do the positives, not the negatives. But if you really love somebody and the positives aren't working, guess what you're going to do? You're going to do the negatives too. You're just going to employ everything that you can because that is an expression of our love. And you see that this person, the author of Hebrews, is expressing every single teaching mechanism that he can think of, because obviously this is a place or a church, a group of people, an audience that he loves. And what does he say using this teaching mechanism? He's saying, you, should, you ought to be teachers. You by this time, you've grown up in the church, you've been to church, you heard the Bible, you, you ought to be teachers, you should be teaching these things. But you're a baby. Here's some milk. You don't deserve solid food. That's the teaching mechanism. Now, the word for mature in Greek is teleios. Teleios is where we get the word that I've used commonly a lot in the sermons is from the word telos, it means the end. It means completion. 
and it's translated here as mature, but the picture that we ought to see is completion, adulthood. This is what you are going toward. You don't want to stay a baby your whole life. There's no one that wants, their even for, wants that even for their kid. You can't stay a baby your whole life. Um, I would like to tell you a little tradition that is uh, Polish. So there's apparently a first birthday tradition that the Polish have, and that is when it reaches their first birthday, they have a little ceremony. They put out a shot glass, a coin, a cross, a book, and bread. I mean, there's some variations to this, but basically it's a, it's a shot glass which um, <clears throat> signifies that you're going to be outgoing, a coin that signifies you're going to be prosperous, a cross, meaning you will be religious or spiritually uh, in tune, um, a book, meaning you'll be intelligent, or bread, meaning you'll be healthy. Uh, it all symbolizes like wind, fire, water, earth. Obviously, the cross is the best because then you're, you know, the ultimate airbender. But it is these things that they would put out, and then they would lay it out, and then the baby would crawl and pick out one of those things. If it sounds familiar to you, perhaps because there are other traditions that are similar to this Polish first birthday tradition. The point is, why, why do people love this kind of tradition? Why do we see this across other cultures as well? It, it's, it's not truth. There, it's, an, it's not a certainty that if you pick the coin, you're going to be rich or anything like that. Why, but why do we do this? Why do we have fun with certain ceremonies? I have noticed, though, that recently a lot of people have taken the cross out because they're like, oh, man, that might be a pastor or a missionary or a pastor's wife. Can't have that, you know, <laughs> they put it to the back. So you'll see other things in that little display of items that a kid can pick. But what is the point? The point is that you are looking to the telos or the completion or the end of the child. You like that. You want that. You're excited for it. You see the potential, and we get excited for what this kid might end up to be. And that's why you don't want to stay infantile in your mind while having the body of an adult. You know how dangerous that is? It's not only not the ideal, it's incredibly dangerous if you had the mind of an infant but the body of an adult. How much damage could this person do? You know, people here have babies, and they're always looking out for the baby because they can, they're liable to just jump off the stage, hurt themselves. Imagine this baby wasn't 30 pounds, but 200 pounds. How are you going to save the baby? You can't. It's going to be very dangerous. But we live in an age where youth is now idealized. It's glamorized. It's envied. And now, in 2023, sexualized. There's this one interaction that I remember. I was in Party City. I was standing in line. I was next in line. And the cashier was talking to a younger lady. And they were talking about life stages for whatever reason. She was ringing her up and just talking about life stages. And he's like, oh, you know, I'm going to be 30 soon, but, you know, it's, it's going to be sad. And then the lady was like, actually, your 30s are going to be the best years. It's so good. I'm actually in my 40s, and it's the worst. And so they're just talking about how, oh, I'm getting older is something to mourn and grieve. But the older person is like, actually, the younger stage that I was in is going to be the best. So, you know, 30 is the new 20, 40 is the new 30, 50 is the new 40, whatever it is, right? And so we're always idealizing youth. And you think about it, why is that? Why are we idealizing youth? And when, when I, you know, there's a certain staffer, kind of sometimes poke fun, saying you're old. It's just for fun, right? Um, <clears throat> but why is that even something funny? Isn't that because adulthood, telos, the end, completion, isn't something that we aspire to? No one goes, wow, you're 60? There's so much we can learn from you. You know, you're 60, oh, your joints must be in pain. <laughs> you know, that's something that we would joke about. Isn't that true? 
Why isn't that that when we look at someone who's nearing completion, who has gained wisdom beyond what you could ever do in your age, because you're only in your 20s, that's not idealized, that's not aspire to, but you're always looking back, it's like, oh man, when I was younger, I could do so many of these things, I could lift this amount of weight, I could run this, this distance, I could do all these amazing things, but now that I'm getting older, oh, it's sad, right? Because the telos of completion is no longer aspired to. You don't agree that this is your end. You're always looking back to where you were an infant. That's interesting, isn't it? Now, I told you that it's idealized, glamorized, envied, now even sexualized. Now we have this massive, massive movement called transgenderism. We have this huge uptick in media exposure to it. You can't look at any kind of social media without being exposed, whether you're conservative or liberal, left or right. You're always exposed to this. And I was wondering what, why that's the case. What is it about this that is so big that we're constantly being exposed, and if we disagree, then there's vitriol against those that would disagree, whatever it is. And so there is this famous person uh, who is transgender, and in September 10th of 2022, and I'm, I'm going to try to connect all of this together with this, in 2022, uh, had an interview with the Observer. 2023, this person is huge, has multiple deals with like Nike and Anheuser-Busch and things like that. But this is the interview, and this is what this person said. When the pandemic hit, this, I'm quoting now, when the pandemic hit, I was doing the Broadway musical Book of Mormon. I found myself jobless and without the creative means to do what I loved. I downloaded TikTok, assuming it was a kid's app. Once I came out as a woman, dot, dot, dot. I'm going to stop it there. I downloaded TikTok, assuming it was a kid's app. What does that have to do with any of this? What does that have to do with you in Broadway or jobless or creative? Why are you downloading something that you are assuming is a kid's app? And when this person apparently transitioned, they transitioned into like a six-year-old girl, this grown adult man. What happens when we continue to idealize the infantile stage and age? What happens when you don't think there's anything wrong with you leaving your infant stage? Well, it tells you here in the Word, it says you don't have any powers of discernment. You are unskilled in the Word of righteousness. You don't know the difference between good and evil. There is no way you can understand the deep things about God or reality. And the more we give in and placate to infantile and immature behavior, the more we should recognize how dangerous it is for us and those that are around us. So how does one mature? How do you get to eat solid food? In verse 14 it says, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Do you know why you don't know the difference between whether murder is right or wrong? Do you know why you're struggling with trying to see the difference between whether adultery is right or wrong, or stealing is right or wrong? Why are you confused about that? Or lying, is it right or wrong? It's because you have not been constantly practicing and exercising your discernment. Is it any wonder that churches are falling by the wayside when all they're concerned about is staying young and hip and relevant, fresh. Yeah, this church, I like this church. The music is fresh. The lights are nice. Is it any wonder that churches are falling by the wayside when that is our focus, to stay appealing to the infantile? So we move on to the next section, apostates, from chapter 6, verse 1 through 8. 
Verses 1 and 2 says, Therefore, therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. Now, this word elementary is from the Greek word arche. It means the beginning or the first portions. And the doctrine, doctrine is the word logos or logos of Christ. So this is the arche logos of Christ. So what you want to do is you want to start from the beginning of the word of Christ to go on to maturity or the telos, to completion. And it's saying, here we go. Therefore, stop constantly laying down the foundation if that were ever possible. Stop constantly laying down the foundation. What does that mean? And explains, he explains what that foundation is. There are six elements. Repentance from dead works, faith toward God, instruction about washings, laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgments. So each of these six things are priestly functions that was alluded to in the previous chapters because Jesus is our high priest. But after this section, the author will be further developing these six things in the coming chapters as well. So leaving the elementary doctrine of Christ or leaving the archaeologos of Christ isn't mean that you're abandoning these things or discarding it. When we are saying stop constantly laying down the foundation doesn't mean you abandon the foundation, but what it means is that you start building on the solid foundation that has been laid for you already. You need to start building the house. You can't keep on thinking that I'm going to lay the foundation, lay the foundation, lay the foundation, and do nothing. It can be seen like this. There's catechetical instruction, meaning we go through catechisms. We learn about God and what the Bible says, and that's the foundation. You get this catechetical instruction, and then you move toward a Christian worldview, a Christian outlook, and Christian development. So now that you have this foundation, you need to start working towards development. It's great. You could be like, this person has so much potential. And people that have worked out a lot in our church or, have, or former athletes, they would look at someone young and they would say, you have so much potential. But I got to say, now as I've gotten a little older, perhaps us saying that to younger folk, that you have so much potential, may have been a terrible thing. Who cares if you have good potential? Who cares if you have strong bones? Who cares if you have good tone in your body that you look like you could be fast if you're not fast? Who cares if you have thick bones if you're not strong? Who cares if you have a foundation if you have done nothing with it? Potential is nothing. It's talking about what you do with that potential. And people, when we were younger, were like, oh, you're so smart, you have so much potential. What did you do with that, though? Isn't that the more important question to ask? So catechetical instruction is important. It's laying the foundation. But you need to have a Christian worldview going forward. You need to have a Christian outlook going forward. You need to have Christian development going forward. And in verse 3, he says, And this we will do if God permits. What is this, some random insertion while he's talking about warnings? If God permits is not a statement of resignation to fate. It's not some kind of auto-pious statement or remark. If God permits, like, you know, uh, when I was younger, <clears throat> whenever we would talk about hypotheticals, I would have a friend who would always say, if it's something that he didn't like, you know, so let's talk about hypothetical. Let's say your mom dies, and he would immediately stop me by, God forbid, because it's an automatic response. I can't even talk about a hypothetical because it's such a, it's such a disrespectful thing to say if one of your parents were to die, what would you do? God forbid. And that would be an automatic response. Is this this kind of automatic response? If God permits. That's not true. If you continue to read this, what is about to happen 
what he is about to teach. When he says, if God permits, there is an understanding that comes. So to the Christian, we don't say, if it's your will be done, as if it's a resignation to faith. If it's not God's will, I guess it won't be done. You know, you know heal this person if it's your will. It's almost like a, a resignation to like the fate or whatever God will, has nothing to do with me, you know. Heal this person if God wills or make my baby good if, if you will, that kind of thing. It's almost like a resignation. It's a giving up. You're like, oh, I have nothing to do. Well, then why pray? And you're like, I don't know. Why do I pray? But if God permits for this to happen, means we need God's blessing. This is not a resignation of faith, but an understanding that we, to do the good things that is required of us, to understand the deep things that we need to understand, the church needs God's blessing. What does that mean? It means we understand that we cannot do this without God. Growth, maturity, understanding all depend on the blessing of God. How else could you understand the things of God without God? You can't do it. Then it is that prayer. Your will be done. Your will be done means I need you to do this right. I need your blessing for me to achieve the thing that you have called me to do. I need you so that I could do your will. That's what it means. It's a prayer. Your will be done. Not as a resignation, some autopious statement, but it's an understanding saying, I need God's blessing. We need God's blessing. We can't do it without God. So God bless us so that we can mature, so that we could get to the telos. Verse 4, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. This is a difficult section. What does this mean? Does this mean you can lose your salvation? Are we no longer five-point Calvinists? Does this mean you can lose your salvation? And I think that's why there was the prayer in verse 3. It seems as though it can lose your salvation. It looks like you can't restore people again to repentance after they think that they can crucify Jesus once again. You're holding him up to contempt. So there was that prayer, and this we will do if God permits. We need your blessing to understand the deeper things of God. So the word, this section, verses 4 to 6, starts with the word impossible. That's an emphatic statement. And then after the word impossible, there is once. Impossible, once, and then there is that list. So in the Greek text, once is before the list. That means it's signifying there's one definitive occurrence of these things. And what are these things? Illumined. That means you're enlightened by the gospel. What does that mean? Enlightening, enlightenment means that your ignorance is removed. What was once dark, you become light. So once you were ignorant, now you are illumined or you are enlightened. Now that you're enlightened by the gospel, your ignorance is removed. So that's one of the onces. The next one is the word tasted. It's coming up a few times here, but tasted. What that infers, if you look at how the verb is used and the picture that it creates, it means up close and personal up close and personal what have you had up close and personal two things the heavenly gift and the shared and shared in the holy spirit and then the goodness of the word of god and the powers of the age to come there are two things so what have you tasted what have you gotten up close and personal with the heavenly gift and shared in the holy spirit and the goodness of the word of god and the powers of the age to come the first one is internal the second one is external. The first one is uh, what we call where we continue to grow and mature, right? You get the heavenly gift shared. And the, the second one is eschatological, which means towards the telos. So you get, the, you get this whole progression. It's actually very, very deep. 
So you have this internal experience, you have the external experience, you have the internal workings of salvation, and you also have the external workings of salvation. All of these workings of salvation, you've tasted and seen, you've seen it up close and personal, and if you've experienced these things, and then you commit apostasy, so falling away means you commit apostasy, it is impossible to restore them again to repentance. What does that mean? What does that mean? So does that mean that once I say I've repented and then I do these bad things, I can't repent again? That's not what it necessarily means. It means, I'll give you two things that these things mean. Number one, and this is the broad statement, this is what we need to understand. If you look at it in context, there is no repentance outside of Jesus Christ. That's the first thing that we should understand. There is no repentance outside of Jesus Christ. You can't crucify him again. You can't put him, hold, hold him up to contempt. You can't do any of these things. It's a once and for all done deal. In Jesus Christ, you have repentance outside of Jesus Christ. There is no repentance. Now, if you've done these things, you are probably then here listening to me. You're probably a professing Christian, just like the readers of the book of Hebrews was. Maybe you were even baptized. Maybe you are part of a covenant community. And then doing these things and then committing apostasy or falling away in this context then necessitates at least two questions. The two questions that we have to ask is, is the falling away temporal or temporary or final? Because other people fell away in the Bible. Didn't Peter deny Jesus three times? Didn't David commit adultery with Bathsheba? But is it temporary or is it final, right? Is the falling away temporary or final? That's the first question. Number, number two, the second question that we need to ask is, are you merely professors, meaning you profess the faith, without possessing the faith? So are you merely professors and not possessors? So do you merely profess the faith without possessing the faith. If you are, then this is committing apostasy. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, it says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. Meaning they were part of this community, but they left because they are not of us. Because if they were, they would have come back. So God's family members do not fall away permanently. Because God knows the heart, that's how we might little be, be a little bit confused. God knows the heart, we don't know the, we don't know the heart. How can we be sure we are not just merely professors, but possessors? How can we be sure? What is the church to do? I'm going to give you an answer. You might not like it. The church is to judge. The church is to judge. I was like, wait a minute, I thought Jesus was my only judge. How can you say the church is to judge? Well, the church has also been given the responsibility to make distinctions on who is a professor only and not a possessor. That's what the church has been tasked with. Otherwise, why even give the warning in Hebrews? If the church isn't supposed to do it, why give the warning to the church? Because you are supposed to share the warning. When you share the warning, you make the distinction. Let's say, for example, don't cross the highway because if you cross it, you're not a Christian. I don't know, whatever it is, right? But this person keeps on crossing the highway and then you go, who am I to judge? That doesn't make any sense. Without judgment, there is no correction. If I can't discern what is right and wrong, number one, it goes back, you are still an infant. And number two, you can't help anyone. People always refer back to Matthew chapter 7, do not judge lest you be judged. But the rest of that passage is talking about how to judge correctly. Take the speck out of your eye or the log out of your eye so you can help the other guy get the speck out of his eye. It's so that you can help people. When someone crosses the highway and they get run over, you can't go, there's nothing I could do. You literally have the instruction. Don't cross the highway. If you do, you might get run over. So if someone wants to continue to do that, you continue to warn that person, especially if you love them and especially if they are part of your 
family. Matthew 18 is all about judging your brother. If your brother sins against you, you go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained a brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. There is a judgment if there's a charge. They're saying, you are charged with doing this sin. And then verse 17 says, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. The whole family gets involved and he refuses to listen to even the church. Let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. They get kicked out. That's called excommunication. And then Jesus ends it like, by saying this, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I. Among them, Christ is with his church. He promises that he's going to be with his church when the church is doing what? Judging, making the distinctions between right and wrong, telling a brother or sister, this is right, this is wrong. It's clear in the word. So, how are we to judge? How will we be judged? What's the judgment have to do? And then there is an explanation. There's a story. There's a metaphor in verse 7 and 8. For a land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it, and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. How do you know? Look at the fruit. Look at the fruit that the land is bearing. Is it evidenced by the blessing of God? Does it have the fruit of the Spirit? Or is it bearing thorns and thistles? Is there bitterness? Is the root of bitterness in you? Is there just immaturity abound, infantileness? Again, here is the danger of immaturity. You can't tell between a good fruit and thorns and thistles. As crazy as that might sound, it's like, what do you mean? I can tell the difference between good fruit and thorns and thistles. Sure, maybe metaphorically, but what about spiritually? Can you tell the difference between the blessing of God and the curse of God? Do you know if you're receiving the blessing of God right now or the curse of God? Because if you don't and you stay in your infantile stage, you'll call a blessing a curse and a curse a blessing. And you literally see that happening today in our society where we can't tell the difference between what's good and bad. Like, it's fine. It's great that we do this. Well, isn't it against the Bible? Bible's old. It's fine. Bible's ancient news. Word of God, spiritual inerrancy. That's all hoopla, garbage. We get to decide our own thing. So you don't know the difference between what is a blessing and curse because you get to dictate what you think is right and wrong. But reality is different. Reality is when fruit comes up and who comes? Who comes to decide? It's the landowner. Who's the landowner? And when the landowner comes and what should have been bearing fruit, what should have been a blessing, instead... You have thorns and thistles come. What happens to the land? It gets burned. It's very dangerous then. Again, the warning is there to stay infantile in our thinking. Here's the last point. Imitators from verses 9 to 12. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. I'm just going to stop here real quick before reading the rest. <clears throat> There's a turn here. You might be listening to me. It's like, he's very, very mean today. Very mean today. And though you might think that it's mean, the author looks like he's doing a little bit of a switch. Looks like he's getting a little bit softer. Looks like there's a turn of optimistic faith. And this is the first and last time, the first and last time the author uses this address, beloved. It's the first and last time he ever addresses his readers or his listeners. And this is why it's so important that we understand this. This is the pastoral heart coming through. Why give, a, give such a harsh word? Why be so mean? 
why can't we just, you know, be nice? Well, I want to go back to my first point. Warnings are issued to those whom you love. If you love someone and you know that there is danger, the warning is issued. Think about it. Why would I warn people I care nothing for? But if I truly love someone and there is a danger, would you not warn them? Now let's look at the degree of the danger. As the degree increases, how would my warning also change in degree? As the degree of danger increases, how would my degree of warning also change? Why such a hard, harsh word before? Because the greater the danger, the greater the warning because of your love. For God is, verse 10, for God is not unjust as to, so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. The warning points us to something. The warning points us to actual people and events that this did happen to and is happening to. This is not a fake warning. This isn't like, you know, if you cross the street, when the light is red, you might get run over and you never get run over. You actually literally see people getting run over. There are accidents. And I, I talk about the highway because it really reminded me when I was younger of, uh, in, uh, so I grew up in Queens. There is this um, broad street called Queens Boulevard. It's like a 12-lane like street. It's a very, very long street. And so there are six lanes divided by having a divider in the middle and then the, on the opposite end there's also six lanes and there's a divider in the middle too and so you have all these cars going back and forth and I was in <clears throat> court uh, because I was a young man but I, I was in court because <laughs> I went to park I went to the park with my friends after sundown they gave me a summons so I was like okay I gotta go to the judge but at that time, I saw all these people in the courtroom because they had jaywalked Queens Boulevard. And this was the reasoning. There are so many people dying because they're getting run over on Queens Boulevard. We need to start enforcing some of these laws. We need to enforce the jaywalking law. And if you grew up in New York, even Jersey, jaywalking is like, if you grew up here, you might be like, what is the word jaywalking, is it a bird or something? And they, you don't know what jaywalking Jaywalking is when you cross the street on a red light. You call that jaywalking. So they started to give out tickets because they were really concerned about people getting run over and dying. There were children dying. There are adults dying. So that's why the warning is real. The warning is real. There are literal people that are dying. These events did and does still happen today. People who don't heed the warning they actually show up as casualties. So you don't heed the warning here, you actually see the casualties that happen. It's not a fake warning. It's not a made-up danger. This is as real as can be. That's what this warning points to. Number two, it points us this expression of love, meaning this incredible warning that we've been given, it leads to an understanding of a deeper and extended love. We really care about people not dying. We don't want you to get run over. We don't want you to be apostate. We don't want you to be infantile because the danger is real and the falling away is real and you don't want that. And that is an expression of love. It's because the pastor really cares for his congregants. It's because the author really cares for his listeners and readers. So the warning points us to these two things. And number, secondly, what does the warning call us to? What is the warning then calling us to? It pointed to these things, but now what is it calling us to do? And it's calling us to a renewed zeal in our service and obedience to God. If you have been complacent, if you have been just like, it's okay to stay where I am, the warning is there so that it will shock you. It will put a spark 
in your life for renewed zeal in your service and obedience to God. You know, some boast these days, at least it's a boast, that there are Christmas and Easter Christians, meaning they will put all their energy, this is what it means, Christmas and Easter Christians, meaning they just go to church on Christmas and Easter, but this is what it really means. It means they put all their energy into other things, not church, not spiritual things. Remember, you hide the cross behind, pick the coin, pick the bread, please, you know? Because you're putting all your energy into temporal things. Temporal things are things that pass away. Christianity is about eternal salvation. Temporal things pass away. Christianity is about eternal salvation. Now, if you understand this, how much weight should you put on what is of eternal value? We work so hard for the temporal, don't we? We work so hard to put food in our bellies, to make sure we have uh, shelter over our heads, to make sure we have clothes on our back. But they're temporal. And even in 2023, how long do those clothes last? They last like a season, and then you throw it out. You put so much weight on these things that are temporal. How much weight should you put on what is of eternal value? That's why we must bear fruit. The land that you've been given, the foundation that has been laid, the rain that you have received needs to bear eternal fruit. How do you do that? And it gives us the word. Be imitators. Be imitators. God has given the church elders and godly people for you to imitate. God has given the church apostles and other leaders in the Bible for you to imitate. God has given us Jesus Christ to follow and imitate all our days. Imitation is key. When I say imitation, some people think, oh, it means copycat. Not necessarily. It could be. Not necessarily. What I really mean by imitation, what I think the Bible also means, is emulation. You imitate meaning you learn. You learn certain aspects. You learn the tone. You learn the color of a song. You learn how who sings it. And you convey that because you're imitating. You're not singing exactly. This is not like uh, some celebrity imitation where you have these like, comedians or imitator, imitators go on and sound exactly like the celebrity. But it is, to a certain degree, emulation meaning you have these qualities that you bring forth and then you also imitate or copy. Because how else will you learn how to sing? How do you learn how to sing? You learn how to sing by hearing other people sing. You learn how to sing by hearing a really good singer sing a song and then you copy it. Um, <clears throat> when my baby was first born, you know, I didn't know what to do. Like, my wife was passed out because she just gave birth, right? And the baby was just crying, crying, crying for hours throughout the night, just crying. I didn't know what to do, so I started singing. And I only could think of one song that I could sing, and it's Great is Thy Faithfulness. To me, great is, it's a very, very popular hymn. To me, Great is Thy Faithfulness is one of my favorite hymns, but to me, it's also a very sad song. And you're like, what? Great is Thy Faithfulness is a sad song? It's like, yeah, it's 3-4. Give me a nice, like, uh, hip song that's in 3-4 time can't think of it because it turns into 6-8. Anyway, and so I would start singing. So I was like, great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father. And I would start singing this. There is no shadow of turning with thee. And it, it, to me, it's a sad song, but it's, it's because I'm overwhelmed with emotion because that's how I learned it. When I first heard this song sung, it was such a powerfully emotional song because it's talking about the faithfulness of God and how faithful and good He is. No matter where I turn, God is there, so faithful. And so I'm getting emotional. And the baby, she starts crying. It's like, oh man, I got to change this song because I wanted to sing this song to soothe the baby. But the baby is imitating what I'm showing the baby. Even at three days old, the baby knows how to imitate because you're looking and you're listening and you're receiving what is there from your elder and you're turning it back and you're imitating it. 
So now, even, <clears throat> even at a few months old, I would sing this song, and she would still you know, have this sad face and start to cry. So I've got to change it. So I just sing, twinkle, twinkle, little star, and then she's happy. She starts smiling. But there is an imitation that we get. It's in the Word of God. And God sets up for us elders, people that have gone before us that are older than us, so that we can look at their path of faith and imitate it. God doesn't leave the church alone. No. His faithfulness is great. He sends us people that we can emulate, imitate, even copy, so that we can what? So that we can grow and mature, so that we can understand the deep things about God and receive the blessings of God. God doesn't want us to stay infants. He wants us to get to the completion, to tell us. He doesn't want us to stay babies. He wants us to start running that race and sprint and live the life that God has called us to live. Live the life that He has prepared us to live. Live the life that He has made us to live. And that is why we follow Christ. We imitate Christ and follow Him all our days because that is the telos. That is completion. That is maturity. Praise God that we are not left alone to our own devices, but that God sends us His Son, and sends us apostles, and sends us elders, so that we can imitate, so that we can be more like him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the word that you give us, the warning that we are to heed, not to stay in our infantile stages, but to look forward to growth and maturity to strive for it with every fiber of our soul and being. And so, Lord, we cannot do this without your blessing. And we ask, God, that you would bless this church, that you would bless each and every single soul that is here, that we would yearn for the telos that you have created for us, and that we would rejoice in our following after you all our days for all eternity. Let's take this time to pray. And let's pray that we would be people that would no longer be satisfied with the temporal, but have our eyes on the prize, have our eyes on the eternal, have our eyes on Christ, imitating him in every area of our lives. And if there is an area in your life that the Holy Spirit is convicting you of, that you ought to repent, remember repentance is in Christ and in Christ alone. And pray for repentance, that you may turn away and turn to God. Turn to Christ in every area of your life. Let's take this time to pray.